You're listening to TWN Champions, episode 24. Champions, arise! Welcome to the Champions Countdown Podcast, where we summon heroes from across space and time to populate our intergalactic museum, or something like that. This is episode number 24. I'm Rebecca, your captain, and with me is a science officer who plays by his own rules. They just happen to be the same rules as science. It's Will! I've left all the doors unlocked on the ship. <laughs> well, that, well, that's a, anyone can just wander in from space. You are a very rule-following person, in general, I, I feel, mm -hmm. I feel. And that may or may not be because you are an Enneagram Type 1, <laughs> according to the very popular personality type testing thing that your mom loves to text us about. She texts it to us so much that I can't even remember which number I was. I couldn't have even told you which one I was. Okay, I just your number <laughs> I'm just so when she sends us one in the family chat, that's like a, the list of them. And it's like how each Enneagram celebrates Christmas or whatever. You don't even know which one's no, supposed to be. No, I just can't even see them. It's just like wallpaper <laughs> when I get it. One. I can't do it. Well, but you're it a is, type one. It, it is funny because she sends these things all the time and there's tons of in-depth discussion about it. But, but it's so funny because... These are discussed like it's some sort of message delivered from the stars that we're supposed to internalize and meditate on. But it's just some lady on it Facebook is just who's some making lady. them. Well, that's the thing that's funny because, like, I feel that the Enneagram, which it's E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. If uh -huh. you're interested in Googling, go take a test. It's fun. Whatever. I feel like the Enneagram is like astrology for people who don't want to be cosmic yeah which for mm -hmm. me it's like, it like I'm, i don't have a ton of use for it yeah, don't I'm talk like, to me unless you got some crystals for exactly, me to don't talk to me if you're not talking about how jupiter is affecting my life personally <laughs> right now okay i want to know what jupiter's up to you know of course it's silly and made up but so is everything yeah. so i tend to be more of an astrology person because um, if in nothing else it's helpful to make you mindful of your own patterns and patterns of other people and yes. how to work with different energies and stuff like that. I think so. I think it's fun. I mean, Enneagram is fine too. We did one of those tests at work to help us work together better. And it just turned into a, a game of who can be cleverest about being passive aggressive of, against the other numbers. And it was pretty funny. You did Enneagrams <laughs> in work. That's yeah. funny. Well, okay. No, according to Will's mom, I'm a type three. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember which one that is. That's the the achiever. Okay. So I'm sp very goal oriented and, and so forth. It's a very flattering one yeah. to be to be considered. <laughs> I mean, I think whatever. But I don't know. I don't know. Really, I'm a Scorpio sun with an Aquarius moon and a Cancer rising. So I'm just a mess. Uh huh. But so. we get along because I'm a Cancer person. <laughs> no, I'm an Aquarius. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> We're both Aquarius moons. That's right, true. That's right. That's that right. is true. But I, I don't know. I just rather, I like to, it, like, the thing with me is if, 
if it it's space, it makes it more interesting on Earth. Yeah. So therefore, let's just let's just talk about space all we can. When speaking of, what do we talk about today? On today's show, we're counting down our personal favorite takes on the spaceship archetype. I'm excited about this one. Uh, I have four. Rebecca has four. It's a top eight. And uh, listen up to the end of the episode because speaking of high achievers and wild women and rule followers, we do have some uh, news for you that's pretty cool. <laughs> cool being a relative term, but yes, listen listen around for a funnish announcement at the end. I mean, it's fun if you're me. I don't know if it's fun. Whatever. Okay, spaceships, though. We're, spaceships is the important thing. And, Will, I'm going to say the words that every man wants to hear. <laughs> Tell me about spaceships. <laughs> My definition for spaceship for our list uh, is obviously more of the fictional spaceship. So I said it was a vessel capable of traveling between stars, either by warp speed or by sustaining generations of a crew. Oh, that's very fan- very fancy. Like, mine was a little bit simpler, but it was just like any a craft that can travel outside of the atmosphere of whatever planet it was built on. Okay. Right? So and real spaceships could so count. So real spe- say spaceships could count, although I'm just going to go ahead and tell y'all, there is not a single real spaceship <laughs> on my part of the right. countdown. I mean, because that's, come on, that's boring. That's reality. Well, that's some Enneagram type one stuff right there. No, I'm just, whatever. But yeah, so... We're, we're talking fictional representations, and we are talking about fanciful travel among the stars. I mean, this is another topic where uh, the real history of space travel and flight sort of interweaves with media because, you know, one kind of inspires the other in a lot of cases. And I'm guessing in our independent research, we both probably stumbled on the first real mentions of um, spaceships, at least that I could find, would, would have been um, John Wilkins in 1638 first st- suggesting uh, about one day traveling to the moon in a flying machine. Oh, that's that's nice. That no. That's a pretty long time ago. Uh, yes. <laughs> but it, does, it did seem like um, early stories about spaceships more often use spaceships as a device to transport us to the fantasy that uh, the writers really wanted to talk about. There was not really a lot of focus on the ships themselves. Uh, yeah, so like the the date that I had was um, Jules Verne. You know, he was uh-huh. very much the father of science fiction as we know it. He was a stockbroker by trade before he decided to give it up and become a science fiction writer, which I think is hilarious. That's, that's funny. And also, you know, he's French too. So just thinking about this French stockbroker be like, but what I want is to write about these stars. That's not how French people, it's a terrible French accent. But I just think it's hilarious. Um, his first sort of spacecraft that he talked about, he actually called them projectiles because in mm-hmm. his mind, you wouldn't be piloting it. You would just kind of get launched to the moon. Uh-huh. And so his story about the moon, they, they were just projectiles. But um, in 1880, several years later, um, the Pall Mall Gazette was describing that story and they they described it as a spaceship, even though that's technically not what it was. Oh, interesting. But that's kind of like the first printed really like time where we talk about a spaceship. And then in the 30s is probably where spaceships start to look like we were thinking about uh, fantasy spaceships where uh, that's where you start to have a lot of the rockets uh, um, where everything's like a Buck Rogers spaceship where it's the cigar shaped thing with the needle on the top and the little fins on the bottom. And, Which uh, is, in my opinion, the best looking spaceship. It is really classy. That's yeah. a, that's a really good one. But I think if we're actually talking about modern spaceships, we're talking about getting into the realm of UFOs, right? 
I mean, I think you can't talk about spaceships without mentioning UFOs, seeing as how UFO sightings predate any of our own ambitions or ability to fly, mm-hmm. which is kind of rad. We we talked about it on our previous episodes. Like, we're not like UFO believers, but we're like, but. I'm going to keep my mind open. Yeah, me too. If Bleep Blorp wants to come down and spy on me, you know, in the dead of night, that's a little bit creepy. Maybe a little bit sexy. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Bleep Blorp's uh, hold doing on to, here. Hold on to the sexy thing. I'm going to talk about that later. Okay? I'm going to talk about that. I'm talking about sexy Bleep Blorps. I'm, I'm glad that it just came out then. And I do also believe that bleep blorps exist, but I'm not sure bleep blorps are too interested in us right now. And by God, I hope they're not. We need like, like give us, give us one more year yeah, just to sort of let's get course it together. correct a little bit. Not, we're not doing good right no, now. No, we're, we're not doing great. We could be doing a lot better. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, UFO sightings, I mean, in print do predate flight by quite a long time. I mean, there are documented UFO sightings in like, Colonial New England in like the 1600s, like, like there's at oh. least one in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That's cool. I mean, if you Google things like early aliens, early UFO sightings, of course you'll get all kinds of banana stuff. But was, was that a UFO or didst thou throw a frisbee? I mean, yeah, they don't, they didn't have a lot of good toys. It could have just been a toy nobody ever saw, saw before. I don't know. There are some people who even say that um, the story of Ezekiel seeing the wheel in the sky was like a proto-UFO sighting in the Bible, which is bonkers. It pro- most definitely was not, but, um, you know, he was the prophet and uh, he got a vision that appeared to him that were like two spinning wheels within wheels and mysterious eyes set around the periphery and it could hover and fly. Yeah. What that, like we talked about how we love when the Bible is like the heavy metal. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I I want to see uh, a weird anime about that. I want concept albums about that. That just sounds too good. I did find that it was pretty well established where we had our first UFO sighting as we think of them in modern times, you know, like where the pilot sees one and maybe there are graylings on board and that sort of thing. Um, It's pretty well established that we got obsessed with flying saucers from a sighting by an amateur pilot from Idaho named Kenneth Arnold on June 24th in 1947. He was going to an air show in Oregon when he spotted some objects flying in a, quote, diagonally stepped down echelon formation. And those objects seemed to be flying on a single horizontal plane, but they also weaved from side to side, occasionally flipping and banking like, quote, the tail of a Chinese kite, he said. And they moved in unison and they didn't seem to be piloted. So it sounded like they were go- trying to get to that air show too. They're like, yeah, they're practicing. Maybe he just got to the air show and it was just a long ways away. Like they look like little dots. I mean, I mean, it's amazing. The more closer I get to something, the more detail there is. But when I step away, it's like what? It looks like a saucer. I'm not drunk at the cockpit. Don't listen to me. <laughs> but here, here, was, uh, here was something that was a little stranger. He calculated the time it took the objects to travel between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, which is a distance of about 50 miles, uh, at a minute and 42 seconds. So that would have been 1,700 miles per hour. And the formation of the flying objects was flying 
uh, more than twice the speed of sound uh, by that calculation. Okay, that's pretty speedy. So maybe they weren't going to the air show. Or maybe uh, or, they or is a hell of an air show. <laughs> it was to be like, this is the best 25 cents for admission I've ever paid anywhere. And then, and then, that, and then that, that squad that performed there, they're like, we can't beat this. Let's just never do another air show. <laughs> they're like, we were going to do a flyover, but now we're embarrassed. Well, so very long story short, he talked to a newspaper about it, and it just lit people up. Uh, because we were culturally ready for it. In the 40s, we still thought that it might be possible there was a habitable surface on Venus and Mars, and so we were really had an appetite for this possibility. Um, and plus, we had a lot of experimental stuff happening, um, like with the wars, unfortunately. And then, obviously, you get another really big bump uh, in the 60s with uh, Roswell. Um, and there's a bunch to say about the paranoia in the 60s and 70s that uh, really made us eat that up. But it was a big deal. And then finally, bringing us to current times, you know, we get another bump because um, the Pentagon just uh, declassified some of those real UFO videos. We don't know what they are, but they're technically UFOs. I think it speaks to what an insane year this has been. And like it recently, but yeah. it's just everything's been very tense and, and, and very bonkers in the world. Yes, that the Pentagon just like casually de- declassified some UFOs. I know. Stuff. And we're like, what? Did I even see that headline? What's happening? Is my, you know, is everything burning down? Again, aliens, please stay away. Stay you, away for a did minute. Did you see, was it this week? I think it was like one of the, the Israeli, former Israeli security person was okay, saying that. I uh, didn't see that. Like we've been talking uh, to aliens. That sounds probably not true, but uh, I'm just a little nervous. Again, aliens, <laughs> I'd just like to invite you to give us a little minute to get our hair done. and Yeah, just let us straighten up a little bit. We're, yeah. we're almost ready. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots from the west. Oh, thank you. And I'm, I'm going to tie mine up here at the end by just saying that, of course, real spaceships are a crazy marvel in and of themselves. But I oh, think... Oh, yeah. That is a thing worth saying, well, right? Yeah. It, it is pretty incredible. Um, I mean, again, I feel that way when I get on an airplane. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, flight is amazing. Let's not ever lose sight of that, okay? <laughs> and stop tweeting at airlines. I already said that before, too. But don't do that. Flight is amazing. Real space flight is a marvel. Eventually, I think we'd like to design them like like cars and you have to have the fictional things to inspire the real scientists and everything. So I think it's fine to still hope for a real slick, super cool spaceship. I think we can do it. We can just, if we could stop having to think of practical concerns. Well, yeah, sometimes we you got to imagine something cool first yeah. before you can make it yeah, happen. The, the, the uh, space suits are starting to t- catch up a little bit. I, I think, I think, I we think pretty there. soon we'll be able to shoot a Buck Rogers needle onto the moon. That's what I, that's what I want. Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. All right, would you like to start us off with your first spaceship? Number eight. Okay, this first pick is a city-sized spaceship spreading good vibes across the galaxy. It's from an album cover... From a sci-fi band you wouldn't think is sci-fi. Oh. oh. It's the flying guitar spaceship from the band called Boston. <laughs> what? 
I was at least expecting like when the, at the moment when Jefferson Airplane turned into Jefferson Starship. <laughs> I thought that we were going there. Yeah, no. it's like it was probably a lot like Michael Jackson Moonwalker when that happened. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, okay, this isn't just a picture. There's a whole story here that you you may not know about. I d- I can tell you with all confidence that I do okay, not know. Okay, I was about real. It. I was really proud of this one. I I, I, I think I think's going. But let's start with the artwork. Uh, you tell me how you remember in your. It's so iconic. You just tell me how you remember that cover and that spaceship in your head, I the Boston spaceship. I don't feel like I do. I just don't feel like I think about it <laughs> at all ever. I don't think that just ever crossed my mind. I just. The only thing I think about with Boston is just. I just think of their their scripty font. Like they like I just think of like a really boring album cover that they have anything on it. That's how Boston is in my mind. Okay, but it should be said you appreciate Boston. I I love. Peace of mind. That's yes. a jam, right? Yes. When uh, I was younger, I maybe would have thought that Boston and Chicago were the same band. I'm older and very mature now, and I definitely could tell you the nuances between <laughs> You may have a better image of this in your head than Rebecca. I but I'll, you I'll probably just, do. I'll just I tell know. Rebecca about what it looks like right now. Okay, yeah, tell me. It's a, what album is it? Well, the spaceship appears on all their albums. But all their albums? Wait a minute. All their albums? Yeah. Boston has a spaceship on every one of their albums. Correct. You are telling me. Correct. I think we've been living in two different universes because, to me, Boston does not have any iconography associated with them and wow. their, their whole act. Oh no, it's 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 a it's a big deal, and there's like a little a little story there. Uh, the third one actually is like a legit like spaceship spaceship, not even the guitar spaceship, but the the first two are the same uh, guitar. What spaceship. does the music of Boston have to do with spaceships? Well, I'm going to tell you all about it. Okay. I'm going to tell you about it. So uh, I'm telling Rebecca what it looks like. It's a backwards guitar where the uh, tail of the ship is the neck of the guitar. The sound hole is where the propulsion comes out of the ship. We got like the fire coming down out of that. And there's a domed city on top of the guitar at the top. And that and that's Boston inside that city. And uh, the, the, the script Boston is written across the bow of the ship. If you look at it, okay. So in your head, you're probably just seeing like the red colors in the script, but that's that's actually what's happening there. Um, so d- despite what we're talking about, it was incredibly iconic. It first appeared uh, in their on their first album in 1976, um, and like we were just saying, they used spaceships on all their covers, and their live show even had uh, like a mock-up of this spaceship where it had like all the lights, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like it was a big deal, which was, was pretty I, I'm cool. All about- a UFO set piece, but it's like I feel like it would okay, make. So you, what you're trying to get at is, what does this have to do with Boston? Boston We're gonna get there. Boston is a very earthy band, okay? Like when I think of Boston, okay, I think okay. they're from the earth. Okay, they are from the earth. I'm glad you said that. Okay, okay. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Okay, okay. All right. So the story behind this kind of kind of funny and and, and pretty interesting. Um, but but you know what? I'm not gonna give it to you. Yet. I just want to talk about. I, because I think people have an image of the band Boston in their head. I think people make fun I of, know I do. of 70s music and dad rock. But Boston is great. And they were actually doing something pretty different in a lot of ways. Like, first of all... Evidently. Yes, they were incredible musicians. Like, their singer had one of those, like, crystal clear voices with that crazy range. And that is true. Range. He's got a, a great high tenor. Yeah. But the thing that made them different and kind of sci-fi was their guitar player and songwriter, Tom Schultz. He was an MIT engineer who built his own studio. That whole first album was built in his basement studio. 
that we recorded in his, his studio. Um, and he invented a lot of the equipment that they use to get that super weird guitar sound that they have. Um, even now, nobody really sounds like that. It's sort of like a, I don't know, you want to describe that guitar sound a little like bit? Like their lead tone? Yeah. I was going to say, like, it, there, there's definitely, like, some doubling, but it's detuned and not in such a way that it almost sounds detuned, like, um, in disharmony with itself, but it's not, if that makes sense. That, that might make sense. It's like almost the... like droning, in a sense. Um, so I'll tell you about the album cover. CBS Records knew this was going to be a huge, massive uh, album they were going to release. And so they were trying to get like the perfect album art for it. And the funny part is that the artist who designed it thinks it's pr- it was pretty lame and dumb and cliche. Uh, her name is Paula Cher, and she's done like a ton in the art world since then. But this is what she's remembered for, and she's kind of annoyed about it. But the way they got here was Tom Schultz said he wanted a guitar on the cover because everybody kept trying to do like these cutesy uh, Boston themed things like a a Boston cream pie on the front or something. And um, that's terrible. Also, because the things that Boston is known for, like the city is like a Boston cream pie, a Boston baked bean. You know, you want a big bowl of clam chowder that you're all in. Like Boston does not have great things for an album cover I'm, the city does so not she thought that it was also lame to do a guitar so she said she could do that if she could make a little story out of it so that her first attempt was the guitar spaceship invading a planet and then Tom Schultz said it and was like no man the spaceship should be saving people <laughs> and so, so, so she compromised. And if you look closely, you'll see an exploding planet in the background. And then the Boston ship is flying out of it with some other city ships behind it. And so like all the people of earth are fleeing on these dome ships, like the other ships are supposed to be like London and New York and stuff in the background. Um, so I think that is so cool and like beautiful. Cause it's like, um, it's like Earth's ambassadors are going out in the galaxy to like rock other worlds. I just think that's so cool. If I they just bring love that. the music of Boston with them, they will have very good luck everywhere they go. <laughs> I think I think this like idea really works. It reminds me of like that Bill and Ted thing where uh, oh yeah, where you're yeah. like spreading you're like spreading music and it's like a universal like sci-fi space uniting other cultures sort of thing. Um, in, in my house, we like that a lot. Like my dad and I like the Bill and Ted stuff, uh, a lot. Cause we love Star Trek and aliens stuff. Plus my dad and I played in a sixties and seventies cover band. So like the Boston spaceship was right up our alley. That was, that was like our thing and made a lot of sense. And I was, so I was trying to think about where that maybe comes from. And I, you know, the best I could come up with was like, um, you know, 60s and 70s rock was pr- like reaching out and rocking everybody you can. I mean, I guess that's <laughs> kind of so. what that is. It was just like free love writ large. Yeah. <laughs> like, love everybody, man. Love that alien. They definitely did that, but it is hilarious because like Boston's lyrics, I mean, if you've ever thought about the lyrics for more than a feeling, it's like, I begin dreaming. Till I see Marianne walk away. He's singing about some lady named Marianne. These are Earth stories. We're, we're sure. Earth stories, sure. I mean, we came from Earth. This is our story. Is Marianne on the spaceship? Is she the Probably ship not. Computer? He probably had to leave her behind. That's why he's singing about it. She blew Marianne, up on that planet. Marianne got vaporized. I think he so. saw Marianne walk away into the airlock, and then she had to eject herself to yeah, save humanity. He had to let her go. Like, the payload was too much. Like, Marianne, I'm going to have to... <laughs> 
I actually really love thinking about have to space you. the entire Boston catalog as being like a space opera about yeah. Marianne in space. Number seven. Let's take it down. Roger that. Yes, Captain. All personnel, this is the Captain. Brace for entry. All systems online. All right, I'm going to jump ahead several decades for our next pick. My first pick is the USCSS Prometheus. Oh, cool. From the 2012 film of the same name. Actually, that movie should have gotten more credit. I enjoyed that movie. So, okay. Well, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll describe the ship in a little bit. They so did I'll, one dumb thing. I'm sorry. I'll let you talk about no, it. No, no, no. We'll talk about Prometheus okay. a little bit. Okay. Well, because, I mean, it's obviously something we need to talk about in the film. Um, this was a 2012 film by Ridley Scott, and everybody was like, is it a prequel to Alien? Because, like, everybody just really wanted that to be true. And eventually it was established that this is the same universe as Alien, and thus the lore sort of talks to the lore of Alien in that way. But I also feel like that's kind of a stretch, and it was really more of a standalone story, Uh but whatever. But I think that people were just like, really, this guy's doing a movie about a spaceship, so that's definitely the same thing as Alien. Just like, I guess they thought Gladiator was also in the same universe. Like, Russell Crowe was the alien. Gladiator is the same universe as the Bible. (laughs) Yeah. It's all related. It's all connected. Because we're a bunch of rubes and we love stuff like that. What? But, um... So, the movie itself, I think, was really fun. And, and, and it's not... I wouldn't call it, like, a classic or whatever. I don't know if it was amazing, but it had some really memorable pieces to it. And mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. And it had a lot of great design elements that I really personally liked, remember liking. I loved their space suits. Like, their suits were very cool. Yeah, I was going to mention that, too. I like that a lot, Yeah, too. and I love the color palette because they had, like, a lot of these really beautiful deep blues. And it was a really interesting kind of look. I liked it. Um, so the ship itself, the Prometheus, this was like a very insectoid design and it's got these rotating engine pods that come out like what the pinchers would be. And because it was a flagship science vessel, it had this giant wraparound windscreen that you could look at, you know, space from the inside. So this is like a very beautiful, beautiful ship. The ship was very fancy. That's the whole thing of it. If you don't remember the plot of this is because um, this ship was financed by a wealthy capitalist, Peter Wayland of the Wayland Corporation, and they were following some cave drawings that seemed to promise this hint of distant space ancestors on a distant exomoon. Uh-huh. So that's where Prometheus is going, right? But I think the thing that at least the things that I remember about the film is that the ship itself is like very, very, very fancy and beautiful. They have all of these different facilities inside. There's a sports court and a movie theater. And while the crew is in stasis, the ship has its own little Android house Carl played very creepily by Michael Fassbender. Mm -hmm. And he's got a creepy Android jumpsuit and everything. And I think he's probably the best part of the ship. Yeah, he was he was like a creepy data. He was cool. He was like a creepy data. He 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 played it he played it well. And then of course, I think we can all remember the really standout scene of this film without any massive spoilers 
Um, cause I mean, it's kind of recent. I don't know. Go rent it, whatever. The, the most memorable part of this ship is that it had its own fancy med bay with DIY surgery machines <laughs> that yeah. may or may not get used in the film Yeah, for interesting reasons. I mean, so there's really not a whole lot to say about this film, except for that. I, you know, we, we want to kind of represent the teenies, the more recent pick on here. Yeah. And of course, uh, the alien franchise or that whole universe has obviously been very, very hugely influential in, um, I don't, I don't know, like our, our sci-fi world and how we think of aliens and how we think of alien tech. I do appreciate that it was similar enough to be in conversation with those films, but different enough to be its own thing, I guess. And we got to see Idris Elba playing a lot of harmonica. Oh yeah, and yeah, I you you forget that he was in that yeah, too. Yeah, he was the captain. He was. He great. was the captain. He was a good captain. Yeah, he was a good captain. I liked when uh, you were talking about those big windows they had and everything. I liked when they were coming down on the planet and they were getting hints of an alien civilization because I think they were talking about how God never made a straight line, and so they knew there was something artificial there because you'd see like the ridges of like mountains and stuff look more carved than organic, and Ooh, it, was, it was some cool stuff. Creepy, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. So I mean, you know, if you've not seen Prometheus, it, it's it's worth a it's worth a gander. You got something nothing else to do that day. We need a good science vessel. That's a that's a good pick. Yeah, yeah, it is a science vessel. Go out, go forth and do some science. Maybe learn some things that you wish you hadn't learned. <laughs> <laughs> Number six. Okay, now I'm going to take us back. In the year 1984, a large spacecraft traveled 4.37 light years to Earth, carrying the best Christmas toys the world had ever known. Yay! I'm talking about the Ark from Transformers. I'm, you know, I guess I knew it was coming, but I'm still surprised somehow. <laughs> this is legit. The Transformers yeah. definitely had and made use of spaceships. Robots need spaceships, too. They definitely do. I, I think it's funny. I mean... Wait a does minute. It, does, doesn't that seem redundant to you a little bit? It like, does. It well, always does to me. It's really funny to think uh, about okay, but, but robots needing spaceships, but I guess they do. Weren't there any Transformers that could transform into a little shuttlecraft, at least? Yeah. I, I, I believe we did have that, but, you but, know... But, you know, you needed a big one. They can't make their whole world out of other selves other transformers like when, true. when optimus prime has to brush his teeth units he's like i need another man to turn into a toothbrush so i can use it <laughs> yeah transform well, I mean, into a bed for me <laughs> i mean like when cars go to the dealership you know they're on those car carriers you know you can't always transport yourself or transform into a ship and go everywhere you need it's to go. hard when you live on cyber trying to like okay what here all right everybody here who's a person Pretending to be a thing, I need to know because it's creeping me out. <laughs> we gotta take like, what's a real thing and what's just a chair? <laughs> what's sentient and what's something we can ride in? Yeah. We don't even know. This whole this whole thing is just completely out of control. It's just funny to think even that robots have to invent stuff or there's stuff they hadn't thought of yet. It's just weird to think about any robots being behind or having to progress through technology. Well, so they like, don't they have just, perfect intelligence, Will. They're just a man well, with a man's courage. Maybe there was like robot cavemen, and they're like, "Me think this square wheel gonna be the way to go." <laughs> out, out, <laughs> out, out. It's like the rosy, the rosy made robot. She's got like a square wheel. She's like, "This sucks." <laughs> so the Ark is the ship that brought the Transformers to Earth. It's an Autobot ship 
basically it looks like a big giant like corn chip. It's a super big yellow uh, triangle. The Autobots built their base inside it. It has stalactites hanging in it. It's stalactites, right? Don't ask me. Don't ask me. I don't know science. I think you told me it's stalactites hang tight. Those are the ones that hang. Oh, and stalagmites might grow from underneath. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Ma- they're like mounds. Yeah. So, uh, and so sometimes the Transformers in episodes would explore caves, um, you know, from their from their wrecked ship. Um, that's how they found dinosaur bones one time and made the Dinobots. But here's the real history of the ship's original purpose and how they got to Earth. Okay, so this is real history, so pay attention, okay? I'm listening. All right, four million years ago, Mm -hmm. the Autobots and the evil Decepticons were fighting a war on the planet Cybertron, and there was an energy crisis. Uh Uh-oh. Okay? That's what a kid wants to know about, (laughs) is a good energy crisis. That's right. Optimus Prime takes his Autobots to space in a giant arc to find a new fuel source. They are attacked by the Decepticons and crash somewhere on Earth in... Depending on if you look at the comics or the cartoon, it's either Oregon or somewhere in the Southwest. Uh, again, depending on what source you read. This was four million years ago, so this would have been the Pliocene period, and the first humans would have been diverging from apes when they when they crashed. Okay, scared the hell out of them, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Starscream, I'm just saying goodbye. So that brings us to 1984. There's a volcanic activity thing happening where they crashed. It awakens the Ark. And the uh, Ark starts repairing both the Decepticons and the Autobots. And we've been enjoying their ongoing war ever since. (laughs) Yes. I like that they had them crash into a real geographic region. Because you didn't always see that in cartoons. It's just sort of like generic New York or something. Yeah, uh, and so it it's kind of cool. It looked, it looked more Arizona-y um, in the cartoon, definitely. And then, like some someday, maybe some of one town in Arizona is like, we need some tourism. Can we just like brand ourselves as yeah. the, the home of the Transformers? Crash? <laughs> That's a funny idea because you know, like they'll claim like this is Iowa, you know, like birth uh, Superman or um or Captain Kirk, but here is like this is the birthplace of. The Transformers. Starscream. Yeah. <laughs> I would go to that. Look, I would go to that town. No. When are we going to get our RoboCop statue in Detroit, by the way? I don't know, but I'm waiting on it. Yeah. And I'm going to go see it when yeah. after COVID is over and when Robo, RoboCop is standing <laughs> proud. We're so, going to go up there. I do, lo- I do really like this ship because I love the idea of like an arc-sized ship. And I really like that the robots need a spaceship. I just think, it, I think it's really cool. And it's this ancient tech thing that I love because... If there's a crashed spaceship, that's the real gold is if you can find the crew inside. Um, remember when we were all going to raid Area 51 before all the bad things happened? Yeah. You know what happened to that? That was a good, that was a good American plan. A good, a- stupid American plan that I also kind of understood. Yeah. Like, we need to see what's in there. I'm re- I'm ready to see the aliens. I do love As the- a nation, we decided we'd waited. We've been patient <laughs> enough. It's time. I, I am happy that people actually showed up to the raid and then just kind of had like a little party in the field briefly. <laughs> and they were like, okay, we'll go home now. That's all we really wanted to do. Let us see Bumblebee. <laughs> He's back there, you know. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> Number five. All right, at number five, I give you Crashed Richty Ship. 
City of Heroes. Oh, cool. All right. So this is essentially, just know that this is my Audi's nostalgia pick, but... Let's talk about alien crash sites because that's because we were just talking about the Transformers, uh-huh. right? Okay. So I, I do think this is an important distinction to make in stories, like the the spaceship in flight versus the alien crash site and what they represent. So remember last week we were talking about dragons and it's always like, okay, dragons are always about the ego, da 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 da. Spaceships are about ego too, but rather than have it be like a personal journey, it's usually about like a collective journey, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like it's riding that line between the ambition that makes us want to grow and then that destructive hubris that makes you try to invade a foreign land and then crash on it. <laughs> Oopsie. So like yeah, I feel- there's something about like now that you say that, there's something about like sustainability and there's like a you can color that darkly or not. Like you're got like there's the idea of traveling to other planets to like seed other places in the universe so that you know your ego can be sustained throughout eternity in some way you need to you need to expand uh, and put your footprint in lots of other places and even like generation ships are like a great metaphor for that you know we've yeah. got to go out farther but it is dark because you know one way to maintain your ego is to be um, the survivor or the top of the food chain and destroying other other things yeah. and so I, I, yeah i think you got something there yeah like yeah what what did the species do that led them there what were their intentions what do we learn from their folly if there was uh-huh. indeed fo- i mean like it, it's an interesting thing um in a story what like whenever there's a crash site like what does that represent right i mean I, that's way too deep for the pick that i did <laughs> which is like you know the city of but Heroes. you're right like there's a story around their ambition and, and something went wrong so what what is that going to teach us yeah. about about that yeah, and it's baked into the lore of the game. But yeah, back to the Rickty crash site, this one in particular. Uh, City of Heroes slash City of Villains was an MMO by Cryptic Studios and NCSoft that ran from 2004 to 2012. So this is a real frozen in time, genuine Audi's old school MMO. Oh man, talk about the perfect story about like spaceships leaving like a dying planet or something like an MMO that is dead. Now is like a dead world or something. You know what I mean? We're kind of like the ambassadors leaving, leaving that game and telling other people about it. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because people are still to this day playing on private servers, which is just crazy to Mm -hmm. me. Like it really is because sort of like this, this little world frozen in time. Fun features of the gameplay of City of Heroes was the presence of these aliens who were bent on taking over Paragon City, the Rickty. Sometimes you would see their ships. Uh, sometimes they would have these spawns that were little miniature invasions in All a right. zone where everybody would come and team up to fight them. And it would just be like alien after alien and this massive explosion, this wonderful chaotic melange of little damage numbers and yeah, it was like really fun. Whirring sounds, wonderful. The Rifty themselves were, it, it's really funny because none of the villains in City of Heroes looked like much of anything because, I mean, this was very much Audi's MMO graphics, you know, but these were tall, armored, insectoid-looking aliens. Uh-huh. If you wanted to farm Richty, you could always go to the Richty crash site, like you mentioned. And I feel like I, I, I don't know, one of my fondest gaming memories ever, and definitely of the decade, was this one day I got into a bizarre flow state in the Richty crash zone, just by myself. I was trying to farm some weird achievement. I don't remember what it was. It doesn't even matter. But 
there's just something so satisfying about when you're playing an MMO, how you have your trays of powers lined up because it gets into a rhythm. Like there's a rhythm of how you cue your powers, right? And like, mm -hmm. and how the animations go and the sound effects and the reactions to them. And it really gets like to be hypnotic and, and fun in its own way where you can just keep mm -hmm. like over and over and over again. And I remember doing this for the better part of about two or three hours, I think, in this one zone, killing Ricky <laughs> while I listened to Idiotech by Radiohead on repeat. <laughs> just for That's some reason, I was just like, this is just a good, ex this is just good right now. I'm just going to keep doing this. Um, there's really not even a whole lot else to say about the crash site except for crash sites are interesting. I miss old school MMOs. They're carrying a really interesting story. Whatever, whatever yeah. crash, there's a mystery there. Yeah, there's a, there's a mystery there. And then also, uh, you got to learn how to figure out how to deal with anything that comes off that shit. Right. Yeah, they're bringing their problems to you. <laughs> and you're going to bring them some problems back. Number four. Destruction in the two universes. I was grown on the cluster, which is ruled by his shadow. My captain is Stanley Tweedle. I blow up planets for him. Okay, the year is 1996. Yay! It's a sexy I mean, time to be in space. <laughs> I. Well, we'll talk about this later. Uh, no, I continue. Especially if you're on board the notorious insectoid starship called. The Lex. This is a fun one because if you do know what it is, you're like, oh my God, this was real? This wasn't just a nightmare when I fell asleep watching TV at 4 a.m.? And if you don't know what it is, it's a real sci-fi hipster treasure for you to find. And I think you may slowly remember glimpses of this as I described it, like something you tried to repress because I can't stress the word nightmare enough. Oh, I'm, I'm hooked. I, okay. I just I have no idea. <laughs> so this is the ship called Lex. Uh, from a TV show called Lex, L-E-X-X. -X. It seemed especially alien to American audiences, I think, because it had Canadian and German writers, and it got picked up um, as some of the early sci-fi channel programming. If you ask me to... <laughs> They're serving poutine and schnitzel in the cantina. What's going on here? I, it no, was very... Kidding. It was... Sometimes it was very sprockets. <laughs> it was, it was. Um but cool, but it was cool. Like it, you know, definitely had that sort of HG uh, uh, Geiger thing going on. Um, it was like a scarier, trashier Farscape. Um, okay. And the main premise was kind of similar, actually. Uh, where, where did it air? Like, where did you see it on cable? Uh, yes, very late at night. Okay. Yes. Um, so the premise is it's the year four thousand two. Uh, there's a misfit crew who takes over a living spaceship. And they're eluding major forces in space while they look for a new home, which sounds normal, but it gets very weird. And I think the best place to start is with the crew. The captain is a uh, former clerk and security guard for an evil insect civilization, and he gets marked for death for screwing up on the job. And it's supposed to be like kind of funny and tongue in cheek, like in a 90s way. So he gets accidentally gains control in his escape of the Emperor's flagship, which is the ultimate weapon of destruction, the living ship called Lex. It's gross. It's like a long black uh, fly or dragonfly, 
and it talks. In the front of it, it's got these big, those big bulbous eyes. It sounds sort of like Hal from Space Odyssey. Its job used to be to destroy planets for the Emperor, but now it only obeys Stanley. Um, <laughs> so it so it has to obey someone. He doesn't have any free will of his own. Right. It, okay. Whoever has the 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 key can do it. So it gets weirder with the other crew members. Uh, I don't even have to tell you about the plots because you'll you'll know where it is from the other crew members. There's Stanley, the convict, who who is the captain of the ship. There's Zev, the love slave. There's Kai, an undead assassin who looks just like Edward Scissorhands with a tall updo. Nah. Uh, there's a robot head. Uh, there's a ta- there's talking brains and tons of little bugs that carry them to other parts of the ship. Um, it was a gross show. Uh, <laughs> in the mess hall, no matter what you order, you get some goop that comes down that's synthesized from whatever the ship ate that day. Um, the toilets are mouthed with tongues that they use for toilet paper. <laughs> It was very, like, 90s grotesque, if you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. It was sort of like um, uh, like uh, rat fink, uh, green jelly, like yeah. trans metropolitan circle sunglasses, which was weird because it was late 90s, but it was still sort of a holdover from the early 90s. So the other important thing to mention about the show is that there are all these very contrived, TV-safe, sexy situations. Like, there's always, like... Uh, disembodied hands touching body parts and showers and, and bleep blorp spying on people. Yeah, I mean it was it was real sm- like Farscape was like um, a sci-fi romance novel you could get, and Lex was um, artsy smut that you could get. <laughs> um, and so you might be wondering, like, okay, so what was the deal with this culturally, like? Why was this show? Did they know? Were, did they know what kind of show it was? Was this just a weird accident or something? Um, my read is it was supposed to be like a half cool and artsy and half ironic twist on space exploration shows. Like this is right in the middle of Star Trek and Babylon Five, and I think this was very much a '90s thing where we always had to like have a little twist on a convention or something. You know, like yeah, flip it up. Yeah. Like, um, like it's a reaction to mainstreamer conventions, like even in music at the time, you know, like you have the chord regression, but the last chord in it's the wacky one. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of like that for the show and it was ugly and raw. Um, I know like, you love Alice and Janes, but it's like how they always harmonized in yeah. that, that weird interval. I think it was like close thirds, if I remember correctly yeah, or something sure. like that. Yeah, sure. I don't, I mean, so anyway, I, I wanted to pick this one because it was one of these that you may not be sure you remembered it, but yes, it was a real thing. You did see it. Nobody ever explained it. Um, it didn't get written about hardly any at all. The first season were like self-contained movies, and then the rest of them were regular episodes. They would jump thousands of years between seasons. It was just a fascinating little little piece of uh, media. And p- plus, I just love a living insect grotesque ship. That is a good. That is a good dude to be on the list. I think. So this is just good strangeness uh, for your brain, and I, I think a like real hipster sci-fi treasure. If if you haven't seen it yet. Well, somebody on Etsy get make you a Lex shirt. Will's gonna buy one. <laughs> I would. I would really <laughs> like that. Okay, somebody do it. Find Will a Lex shirt. And also go to your haircut person and show them a picture of Kai's updo and say you want this. <laughs> please, one Kai, please. Like, huh? Number three. She's 
gone much, much farther than that. She tore a hole in our universe, a gateway to another dimension. A dimension of pure chaos. Pure evil. When she crossed over, she was just a ship. But when she came back, she was alive. Look at her, Milan. Isn't she beautiful? Your beautiful ship killed its crew, Doctor. Well, the hits of the 90s keep on coming. <laughs> because for my number three pick... I give you the event horizon. Oh, cool. All right. You so, like the horror. Okay. Well, I do kind of like, I mean, like that, I wanted to pick one because I thought the horror was kind of fun. Yeah. You know, I picked this because it's the most 90s space movie. And before we talk about the plot or whatever, I'm going to tell you some things that make it the most 90s space movie. Number one is your captain is played by an in his prime of his peak of his career Lawrence Fishburne mm -hmm. so this is Lawrence Fishburne riding high between what's love got to do with it and the matrix right this That's is right. this is him and his tooth gap and they are just getting it <laughs> he came right off the Nebuchadnezzar and got onto this ship <laughs> yeah. and and by the way I love tooth gaps That's why I love Lawrence Fishburne's tooth he's gap. cool he is cool and it's an excellent tooth gap okay so it's got him it's got the most 90s bit actor that you kind of remember and don't remember, but you don't remember his name, and his name is Jack Noseworthy. Okay. So he was a young guy who was all over the 90s, and you, Will, you definitely remember him as the guy in the mean grunge band who plays against the Brady Bunch in the Brady oh, Bunch movie. Uh, we are Flim. Exactly. That was Jack Noseworthy, that guy. Leon missed an entire riff. Exactly. <laughs> Leon missed an entire riff is like our favorite dialogue in the world because no one has ever said that sentence before except in that movie. Like, Leon missed an entire riff. Who would ever say that? It was very ridiculous. So that was Jack Noseworthy, the most 90s guy ever. Um, he he was also briefly in a MTV show called Dead at 21. That's okay. where he got his big break. And he was also in a Bon Jovi video. Oh. And I think it was the song Always. I don't remember, though. So he was in it, very 90s. Um, the ship sort of looked like 90s goth. Uh, the ship's log, when they find it, was on a CD in a CD drive. This is all very 90s. And then the end credits roll to the sound of Funky by The Prodigy. So oh. this is a very 90s movie. Yeah. Okay, I just want to hammer it home. If the 90s had a sp spaceship, it was the event. They were horizon. not going for timeless. No. Um, even though, okay, so this is a movie that I think could have been a whole lot better than it turned out to mm -hmm. be. And from what I understand about the production, reading up on it, it was that it was a really solid concept and had even good actors and good um, chemistry there. Yeah, it sounds like it. But um, it suffered a lot because of editing. And I think you can really see that, especially if you're watching like a writing snob. Um, that what are supposed to be emotional scares and moments don't land because they just don't, like nothing really has enough time to develop. Okay. So basically, um, the deal about this film is that it was a deep space research vessel that disappeared just past Neptune. And um, it was, it had an experimental faster than light travel mm -hmm. where it made a dimensional gateway that would fold space. Uh-huh. But... Apparently, when you make a dimensional gateway, sometimes you might 
get into a dimension that's crazy and evil. And that's yeah. what happened to the Event Horizon. So it's haunted, like, basically, essentially. Oh, I thought I remembered. Did they actually literally go to hell? Or was it just it sort of evoked that? It was, it was meant to evoke that. And, um, oh, my God, I think you're thinking of... So I think there's a lot of similarities between what Event Horizon was talking about and what happens in Warhammer. Okay. I feel like there is like that people were talking and about doom. that. Yeah. Yeah, like there there is a you can fold dimensional space and wind up in hell I essentially. Okay. I think that that is a I big, like that. I yeah, it's t- it's tacky and ridiculous and what's not to love. So, this could be a really good atmospheric horror film and I think that where the movie was really good was in its set pieces cuz it's sort of like a haunted house, right? Uh, uh-huh. the ship's designer is part of the this research I'm not sorry, not this research crew. This rescue vessel the lewis and clark um that lawrence fishburne is the captain of and the scientist is like explaining the layout of the ship and what the function of each part of it is and so it's built sort of like uh, a haunted house that they have to keep going in each section and oh. scares happen that are like specific to that section ah, right okay, and it's okay. kind of like a fun house it's a little it's a little wacky and everything looks a little weird okay this is a haunted house spaceship that's it cool. is a haunted house spaceship and that's why i thought it was fun so anyway there's not really and there's a theme they're all interdimensional horrors and it's interdimensional and um it's the like apparently the nature that the horror takes is that it knows your deepest secrets and regrets and it will like give you flashes of them uh-huh and everything has red eyes and is like you left me behind to die johnny um it's just basic uh-huh. it's, it's all like that <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say like you were never gonna get a lower price on that guitar yeah yeah, yeah. your your regrets <laughs> would, would be very few but apparently they all had lots of regrets okay so anyway, I'm just saying if you've not if you're in the mood to watch a trashy '90s space horror film, Event Horizon, it's pretty fun. Cool. And Lawrence Fishburne. Number two. It's too close for comfort. Whatever it is, red alert. Ray shields, energized phaser banks. Stand by to lock photon torpedoes. His energy on. signatures fluctuating. It's decloaking. It's definitely a Federation starship, but I've never seen that design before. Federation ship? The cloaking device? It's hailing us. On screen. Okay, you knew it was coming, just like the Transformers. We we know this is a Star Trek house. It I is. could have picked any ship in the Federation. We know you could have. They're all cool in their own way. I almost did pick the Enterprise D. It's the, cl- the classic, but I didn't want to pick one just for its design. I, p- I wanted one that has the most character and the most heart. So I'm going with the Defiant piloted by Captain Benjamin Sisko and Commander Worf from Deep Space Nine. Yay! Do you like this one? Do you like The Defiant? Okay, now, here's a thing that you need to know about me, is that I don't have an opinion on a spaceship what? in particular. But you like Deep Space Nine. I do, but... but you don't care about the ships. Yeah. I like, mean, you can, you can appreciate like why they're cool, but you okay, don't... Okay, we drive a Toyota Corolla, okay? I don't ever think about my car i don't ever think about a car i don't think about a vehicle i'm just like i'm here and i need to get over there and i feel the same way about spaceships so if you put me at the helm of a spaceship i'd be like what does it look like again and i could never find my spaceship in a parking lot i'd be like which one is mine well you know what the defiant might have been a good choice for you no it did it did look different than the other ones. yeah because it was not focused on aesthetics um like i said i like a ship with a backstory especially if it's like a ramshackle 
design thing that has some safety issues and the characters really have to make it their own because it had some weird story about, about um, how it came into their possession. Yes. Uh, even if it's ugly, which this one was, all of the Federation fleet is super buttoned up, up to spec and elegant. And the Defiant was actually a prototype ship that the Federation built specifically to fight the Borg because they got whooped in that uh, battle where they captured Picard and turned him into Locutus. And so they wanted a ship that focused solely on defense and there'd be no families aboard this one or anything like that. Yeah, hit the road, Keiko. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Wait, was Keiko on Deep, Deep Space Nine? Yeah. Well, then, well, I she did what? Okay, never mind. Um, did they have, was there a kid on Deep Space yeah. Nine? What was their kid like? Molly. She was annoying. Okay. She was, you know. Well, they didn't like, at least they didn't like grow her up real fast and be like, Molly, you're the new ensign. But the Federation hated this ship um, because it basically ran too hot. Its guns and engines were too overpowered and they just didn't use it. So years later, by season four on Deep Space Nine, um, the station is under attack by hostile aliens. So Captain Sisko asks Starfleet to give him the Defiant to protect the station. And we find out that he actually helped design it when he was in charge of the shipyards before he was in charge of the space Aww. station. Hello, Major. Sorry to startle you, but I wanted to test the Defiant's cloaking device. The Defiant? I brought back a little surprise for the Dominion. Do you remember the cool special thing about the Defiant? The thing it could do that no other ships in the Federation could do or were allowed to do cloak that's it you gave me a hint by say aloud i knew that one i knew it, that it had a cloaking device the thing you have to know about star trek ships is it is super against the rules for the federation to have cloaking devices on their ships it's rude and illegal but we also know that the deep space <laughs> Nine crew rude loves to break the rules and so they got some Romulans to loan them a cloaking device. And I love this part. They also asked for a Romulan crew member to be in charge of the cloaking device. Eventually they wrote her off, but I loved her while she was there because her whole role was like, do not look at the cloaking device. Only I may touch the cloaking device. It was like a big secret. That was the only way the Federation would let them have it. It was, it was like, let's let the Romulans handle the dirty part. Because they'd be like, we didn't cloak it. A Romulan did. And so it was really funny. Federation. But I love I love the Romulan lady. I, I would like to see more of her. And the other fun thing about it was that uh, Worf eventually joined the station, and he just did not want to have any of the funzy activities and all the family atmosphere. So he actually um, got permission to live on the Defiant. He actually put his quarters on it. Um, and uh, probably the finest moment for that ship was in the movie First Contact when they're fighting the Borg. And Worf is in charge of the Defiant, and it's taking tons of damage. And before they're about to get saved, Worf commands the crew to assume ramming speed to ram that little ship into the Borg cube. It was the funniest thing. I love that moment. Perhaps today is a good day to die. Prepare for ramming speed! Well, so before we name our top spaceship, we feel compelled to list some honorable mentions. I'm going to go with Brainiac's ship was just a giant version of his head that has tentacles, which I think is great. Yeah, I would want a ship that looks like my head. It's a big robot skull with tentacles. That's great. And again, that would make a good album cover. (laughs) I'm going to say the ship from Metroid, same as his ship. I think that's really elegant, cool, sort of like a a manta ray or something. Uh, The... Here's one you're going to be jealous of. I think it's pretty cool, the idea of the, the jackhammer from Coheed and Cambria. Yeah, it's, I, 
it's cool. I thought about it, but that I just like that, that they, story is all over the place. But I like that they mentioned the ship in the song. It's a big part of the song. I think that's cool. It, it, that is very cool, and I love them dearly. But I got the the story behind the music is a mess. <laughs> I love you, Claudio, but Jesus. Well, I'm only gonna pick the ship then. Okay. Um, and I would also say the UFO that Mulder finally got to see at the end of the X-Files movie. Oh, that's sweet. That's a sweet one. <laughs> to that, I would add, okay, the TARDIS, fine. Uh-huh. And uh, this, generally speaking, the ragtag fleet of Battlestar Galactica, because I do like the idea of the whole fleet being kind of like one unit, but it's real busted. Yeah, and those are generation ships, I think. Well, they have FTL, but they are also generation ships, I think. They were whatever they had, yeah. right? Yeah, they all had a, yeah. Yeah, there was some science they didn't explain to us. It's okay, they didn't have to. Yeah, those are cool. So what was your number one spaceship of all time? Number one. So this is actually in complete harmony with what you just said, because my pick for the number one ship is, of course, the Millennium Falcon. On Solo, I'm captain of the Millennium Falcon. Chewie here tells me you're looking for passage to the Alderaan system. Yes, indeed. If it's a fast ship. Fast ship? You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It's a ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. I bought run Imperial starships. Not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Carillion ships now. Uh-huh, okay. From Star Wars. Which we don't usually do. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to say, Star Wars fans who may listen to this podcast, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's terrible. That sounds terrible, but I do, I am very well aware of how we are usually like, Star Trek is the best, because we're like that. And I want to, okay, I'm not... I'm not a total heartless Star Wars hater, okay? We're going to give it the number one spot. But this is for a lot of the same reasons that you gave the Defiant the number two spot, right? Because this ship is the personification of the plucky underdog, Mm -hmm. which is why the original trilogy was so heartwarming, right? Like, it's about trying even if you're the little guy and you Mm -hmm. do it imperfectly, and imperfectly is the best way you can do it. And sometimes imperfectly is what the enemy is not expecting because they're not expecting the little guy. Um, they don't have tactics for the little guy. And they have so many mods and stuff on the ship. It's, it's they also don't know what to expect. Yeah, it's, 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 a, complete, it's a complete renegade. Even the uh, Millennium Falcon even looks like the Defiant. It's very, very similar in, in shape and stuff. It was. Now, I'll give you a little bit of trivia about the design of the Millennium Falcon. All right, so uh, originally they had a, an idea for it, and it looked too similar to another um, ship that was on a television show. So they actually made that ship be Leia's ship. Oh. And then this ship, they actually designed really, really fast on a tight turnaround. Um, and then George Lucas was like, make it more like a flying saucer, because he, like, he wanted it to look different. And so the model maker and designer, um, so J- Joe Johnston was the model maker, he decided to make it like hamburger shaped with an olive cockpit. Oh, but, funny. But if you ask me, it looks more like a cookie, like a flat oatmeal <laughs> cookie. I re- I'm hungry. I really want a, uh, an oatmeal cookie. And then, of course, in the lore, what we know about the Millennium Falcon is this is Han Solo's ship. And it was once owned by my favorite Star Wars dude, Lando Calrissian. Mm-hmm. And Han won it in a card game. It's a wild man ship. It's a smuggler ship, so it has secret smuggling compartments, and it also has hyperdrive capability. 
So that's where his famous boast that it made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs came from. Uh-huh. So it's like the fewest jumps necessary to avoid all of the stuff you could crash into in space. So this is a beloved ship because it's worn and junky and it's been repaired and rebuilt and modded a whole ton. But it's got that je ne sais quoi. And mm-hmm. that's why it's got to be number one, right? You and I love Star Trek, OVS. Or, you know, that's that's the thing that we tend to gravitate toward because that's the rep- the representation of humanity's best impulses in this official and ritualized way to progress as a species, right? Like, we're going to go out in our ship. They're a fine ship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, have our contact protocols and have our war protocols. And we have our protocols, and this is how we shall advance, mm-hmm. you know? We can mark through diplomacy and successful defense whether, you know, like whether we're progressing as, as humanity, right? Um, this is actually one area where I think Star Wars wins because generally speaking as humans, we advance through sheer dumb luck and being willing to try despite stupid odds. Like that's really, what? that's really where we uh-huh. shine. I mean, it's really more accurate for more of humanity. And while we long for the dignified, uh, the dignified Starfleet life that we all want, Really, we're all more just like Han Solo. Well, I, th- I definitely think the Defiant this ship are of a piece with that in mind, totally. too, because Deep Space Nine was probably more Star Wars-like than Star Trek-like. That is true. Because they also had the crazy odds and had to face a lot more gray areas. And mm-hmm. and, and that's, the, that's the beautiful metaphor for life. We're all just uh, piecing it together day by day with the ramshackle parts we have on hand (laughs) and we got to do it anyway and we do we do do it anyway i was trying not to say do do together but i did anyway (laughs) anyway you know props to star wars it's it's a classic ship and it deserves this number one spot looks to me like they impounded your ship lando this is unbelievable i'm definitely gonna have some words with someone about this So I'm, I'm thinking about these picks together. I'm thinking we definitely like ships with the backstory. Yeah, like I feel like we like ships that like I, I don't know. Well, you don't look at them like car like a car magazine. No, uh, it, it really does mean more for for them to have some have some heart. Yeah, I want to know how it's being used and, and what it yeah what's, what's the, going on. What's with the it. story there? Yeah, what's the story? Yeah, that's interesting because all the ones I'm thinking of were pretty ugly ships. Um, this is a pretty ugly list. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Yeah, everything's ugly. I like. I like it though. Yeah. Well, where's the cute spaceships? <laughs> um, and so at this point too, um, before we get to the the credits here, I did want to mention that piece of news we mentioned um earlier. Yeah, we really were hyping it from what I remember <laughs> from an um, hour ago. Um, which is that you know we've been talking about some of the music that Rebecca has been um working on, and we'll talk more about this in January. But um, Rebecca has an album releasing, what's the date? January 29th. January 29th. The, the full album is coming out. But before then, Rebecca's going to be um, sharing some singles from the album, sort of like a friends and family sort of tease. Yeah, we're going to call this a soft launch. Okay. Because, and, the, and the reason that I'm doing this is because in order to get into your Spotify artist profile, you have <laughs> to have something there. So you have to release a track, and then you can start pitching your other releases after you do that. So anyway... Uh-huh. Um, it might be Friday. It depends on when I get approval from the distributor. 
but we're going to do a soft launch. Going to have a downloadable single for free at keengarity.com. K-E-E-N-G-A-R-R-I-T-Y. And will it be on Spotify? And it will be on Spotify and everywhere you string music. Yeah. And I think it'll be another one in December, too. We'll tell you about that one later. Uh, yeah, uh, well, and I'll have another lead-up single. But, yeah, this is be, being real now because yeah. we got to just, again, do what we can do with the ramshackle parts on hand. <laughs> and that is how I made this album. But I, but I will say, because she won't say it, it's really good. I mean, I will say it. It's really it's, good. It's really cool. Okay, just because y'all know me doesn't mean that it's not amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. Like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but it's like it's really, really well, good. Well, we're, we're really proud. I'm proud of Rebecca for it. I'm I'm proud of my guitar parts on it, <laughs> what she told me to do on it. But um, uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. And, and like I said, we'll talk more about it as it gets closer, but it's sort of like a um, modern Americana sort of thing. That's and it's, what I would say. And it's sort of, and it's, it's a little strange. It's, they're also. It's very storybookish. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's really cool. And we'll talk more about it, but um, you can start uh, poking around for that next Friday, probably. Yeah. Hopefully next Friday. Okay, cool. Or uh, that'll be this Friday if we release it. The 18th. Oh, that's right. December. If yes, we release it out, Monday, it will be. And, and if it's not, if it doesn't come out, then it'll come out really close to then. But like I said, I'm just waiting on the distributor to give me the go ahead. Cool. Okay. Wee. And that single is going to be called get big. It's the title track from the yep. album. Okay, cool. Uh, well, if you have any questions about that or you have thoughts about this list or your own suggestions, email us at rumors at the com or talk to us on social media. Rebecca, where can people follow us? You can find us on Twitter or Instagram or visit thewizardsnightshirt.com to find out about this show and our other shows like Curdle Holler, our original Halloween comedy audio series, and a complete archive of our Masters of the Universe review show. Oh, can I just say, I saw um, some pretty good activity for both of those shows um, this past week, which I, I love to see because, I, I, again, I think they still hold up very well and they're fun to listen to and we're going to keep writing on Curdle Holler. And so yeah. thanks. thanks for listening and thanks for spreading the word on that. I really do appreciate appreciate it like seriously i know um your your time and attention is the most precious gift you have to give and i'm honestly really really glad you spend some time with us like i really do appreciate it uh, so thank you for listening and we'll see you next week when we call forth new champions the legends they tell